Research for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this episode, I'm going to talk with Natasha Rawlings. Natasha is an investment manager at Uniseed, and Uniseed is Australia's longest-running venture fund, which operates at major Australian universities and the CSIRO. In November 2015, Uniseed started its third and largest fund with each of the five partners, investing $10 million over 10 years. In March 2017, Uniseed committed another $20 million to a follow-up fund, and in 2018, a co-investment fund was created with private capital. So Natasha, just to start, can you explain to me what you do and what is the role of Uniseed? Yeah, I think that was just a great summary, by the way. <laughs> Fantastic. I this don't need it. to say much more. <laughs> That's it. I mean, stop now. So I'll start off with what Uniseed is. Yes. And I think you explained it really well, but just a little bit deeper. We're an early stage deep technology investment fund. And we can only invest in the technologies that come out of our partner institutions. So that's like this great university, the University of New South Wales, but included in that is the University of Sydney, the University of Melbourne, the University of Queensland, and you mentioned the CSIRO. Right. So a little bit restricted. But our job really is to get great research into the world for impact that can obviously also be a very big business as well because we operate like a, a venture capital fund. So we take those monies that the universities have given us and we invest it in their technologies, create big businesses that hopefully one day sell and return to the investment fund so that we can return an upside back to our, our partners. So that's, that's how the fund operates. And so for me, my role at Uniseed is an investment manager, as you said, and my job is to find that great research that can be a very big business and pick it up by its bootstraps. We get very hands-on at Uniseed and, you know, create a business and get it off the ground and running, get further investment for it. So it keeps going and it returns to the fund. Right, great. So just a couple of terms you've used here that like yes. to unpack. Yeah, so, yes. so you started to say great research. Yes. So great question. Yeah. What is great research for you? Okay. Yeah. I think, I mean, great research is great research, right? So if you're doing something that is letting the world know about something that we didn't understand before, I think that's great research, right? But for us, we are looking for a very particular type of great research. We're looking for research that can create a very big business. And, you know, so there's great research that is just pure research, research for research's sake, that has a, an important part in the world. There's research that, you know, just is a step change or two-step or three-step changes that could be really great for a business, you know, and they're often licence opportunities. I guess what we're looking for is research that changes something by a multiple of 10 or 10x. And so that and it has a, a value, a monetary value to a great amount of people. 
And our rule of thumb is that, you know, we can create a business from that research that will have a business that is having revenue of something like 30 to $40 million in five to seven years' time because we can probably then sell it for $100 million. Yes. And with the way that we invest, you know, we'll get a 10 times return on our money. So if we invest 500000 we want $5 million back. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so uh, follow up on this, yep. how do you find that great research? Well, we are quite involved with the tech transfer offices of each of the universities in the CSIRO. So depending on the university, we either, like if it's a Sydney university, I'm lucky enough to sit in all of their patent meetings. So every month they sit down and they look at the research that they're doing in that institution and what will be patented and what won't be or what is on its way. So I get to see everything that's coming from that point of view. In other universities like this one, we rely on the tech transfer office to tell us about stuff that's happening that they think can be a great business one day or I also reach out into faculty as well. So if I hear something that's interesting with often an introduction from the tech transfer office, I'll go out and chat to people and hear about what they're doing and, and start drilling in. So the earlier you get involved, the better for you. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because we can help shape right. what someone's doing. And, you know, so going back to your question of great research for us, it actually gets down to are you solving a problem that people care about, right, and are prepared to part with money for. So that's really key for us. So if no one's prepared to pay for it, we're, we're not going to get involved. And, and sadly, there's lots of great things that would create great impact for the world, but they don't create great businesses. And a really good example of that is any sort of vaccine for a third world virus. Unfortunately, there's no money in that unless it affects the first world. So we don't tend to invest in things like that, even though they're very worthy (laughs) research and and potential social businesses and things like that, but they're not going to create a return for us. So, sorry. So what do you think about academic research? Is it not trying to address current problems that people want to pay for? Or or is it not Not in the main part, not, not from what I can gather a lot of the time. So there's definitely some researchers who are really interested in industry problems and will go out and talk to industry and find out about their pain points. And by the way, like I'm an ex-entrepreneur as well, right? Yes. So I have lived and breathed this in my own business and other people's businesses for seven years to try and, you know, create products that solve problems. And so there's researchers who approach it in a very entrepreneurial way and go, well, what what does industry really need? But I think for the most part, and this gets down to economics, which is in really simple terms, the law of incentives. So how are researchers incentivized? At most institutions, they're incentivized by the amount of papers that they produce and where those are published, right? right? Yes. And so that is not actually finding out about an industry problem and looking at creating a license agreement or something like that, because often it can't be put in a paper. You know, so something that can be per- commercialized and go into patent is at exact odds with but- most of the time publishing. But one could argue that it is not the purpose of scientific research to build commercially sustainable businesses. Sure. 
Yeah. So how do you bridge that gap? How do you take great research yeah. and find problems that this research will address and will solve? Yeah. Well, first of all, I sort of disagree with that statement. I mean, only in that I think research should be whatever the researcher wants it to be. Yes, sure. Yes. <laughs> and so if they want to create papers and, and do new things, that's fantastic. If they don't, I think that's also fantastic, right? I think they're yes. the masters of their destiny. Yes. But I think the institutions that they work in incentivize things in different ways. And so... And not um, only the institutions they work in, but also the funding agencies. Absolutely, right? So there's all of that. And that's all about economics and incentives, right? You know, like, how do I keep my department going? How do I get my position here? How do I keep right. getting money for what I'm doing? And there's a whole grant thing, you know, which is very broad and very interesting, but super competitive as well, right? I mean, I don't know what the odds are of getting, what, what's the odd of actually getting a grant? 10%. 10%. Okay. Well, it's probably still better than getting venture capital. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's still not high. So so there's a whole lot of people that miss out, right? So that, that's interesting. Yeah. So if the chances of getting funding from venture funds is yeah. higher than your chances of getting funds from the government or yes. from grants, yes. why aren't more people going to knock on your door yeah. uh, to present to you what they do? Yeah. Well, I think the thing at the moment is that because research isn't set up at the beginning to be attractive to a venture capital, then you're going to get very low results. So we get maybe 250 to 300 disclosures a year and we invest in four to six, say five on average. So there's the odds for us as a fund. But you've got to accept that a lot of what we're seeing was never meant to be commercialised. Right. It wasn't yeah. the point of it. Going back to research again, and I'm, I know we keep going on down different tracks, but for me good research is that suits Uniseed is research that can be made into a big business that is solving a large enough problem to build a business off, right, is novel enough to do something with. So the stats are not great for the projects or researchers. Yeah. yeah. Four or five projects getting up yeah. and, and 300 applications every year. Yeah. How much work do you have to do? How, how much work do the researchers have to do to convince you that it's going to create a great business or that it's going to solve a problem? Yeah. Well, they've got to do a lot of work because, and it's actually, to be honest, not often them doing the work. It's the yes. tech transfer officers, right? Yes. So this is where they act as a team. Because that's not their job. It's not their job and we shouldn't expect it to be. Some do. But they're the rare ones, you know, who are sort of looking at the commercial opportunity and the work they're creating. But some are, but they're rare. So it's the tech transfer officers. But, you know, even then, that's a, that's a lot of work to really understand a market, what something can be sold for. So when I'm talking to researchers, quite often what is really taken for granted is how how much time, money and effort the commercial side of the business takes. Often it's actually longer and more expensive than the research and they don't really understand that. So the amount of times I've been told and literally word for word good marketing will take care of that is Perhaps. unbelievable. Now, as a career marketer, <laughs> I understand how hard marketing is, you know, to actually get sales and get a return on investment for, your, you know, your marketing dollar. So I find that 
interesting. So that needs a lot of work to, you know, because when you come and pitch to the Seed Investment Committee, and it's probably good understanding the process because it's very similar to other funds, you're pitching a business, you're not pitching research. So yes, we want to hear about the technology, but actually if it comes from one of these institutions and it has a patent, the tech's pretty good. There's probably not a problem with the tech, but we want to understand the business. Who are the customer? How important is this problem to them? You know, is it really, really painful? And then how much are they prepared to pay for it? How much money are you going to make? Can you build a business from that? How are you going to get to those customers in a cost-effective manner? When are your first revenues going to come in? How much money are you going to need over time? You know, what resources, blah, blah, blah. It's a business case. But isn't that asking too much from... A researcher, absolutely. Yeah, and most of them cannot do that and that's where they need the tech transfer office. And sometimes if we're passionate about the technology and we have enough time, which is actually really hard, then we'll even put some effort into it because in our diligence process I go out and speak to customers, right, and so I'm trying to understand do these customers really have this problem? Quite a lot of the time, unfortunately, they don't, you know. So the four or five projects that get up or that Uniseed invests in every year, Mm -hmm. are they really clear to you that they're going to create the basis of a sustainable business or a great business? Okay. Do they stand out? Yeah. Well, they, they definitely stand out. Right. So most investors will tell you it's really easy to, to say what you won't invest in. It's really hard to say what you will invest in because there's always so many red flags with any business, right? No business is perfect, is bulletproof. Yes. There's always uglies, especially right at the beginning. Right. You know? That's right. And so what I say to the, the guys and gals who, who come along with me for the journey is that, look, there's red flags there let's expose them, let's put them out there so we can talk about them and convince everyone they're worth living with. Yes. But let's make sure that 100 red flags don't come up. We just want the five that count because if you get too many red flags when you pitch, you'll never go through to diligence. My aim is just to get you through to diligence at the moment. Right. So, yeah. And so how much does the technology count in your due diligence? Quite a lot and also just depend, well, it depends, right? So the things that I've invested in actually don't have walls created by patents. So a lot of the deeper technologies that we invest in, especially a drug, we spend a bit of money doing patent checks, right, and freedom to operate and really understand that because that's the only protection that you get in the drug world. For things like my smart motorcycle helmet, Foresight, which came out of Uni of New South Wales, or wildlife drones that went through the CIRO on program and had its roots in and Sydney Uni as well. That's more about execution. It's all about how quickly you get to market, how smart you are in, you know, doing your business. That's your competitive advantage. But with everything else, for example, if we're doing a battery technology. And that is a really scary space because there's a lot of different battery technologies out there and all the inventors hate each other because they all think what they're doing is the best (laughs) and they're competing for grants. But we will want to really understand. We want to see the working prototype, of course. You know, we won't invest if they don't have that. But we, you know, we will call in experts to sort of go, okay, does this technology have a chance? And it's not just the initial technology. Can it be produced 
can it be mass produced in a cost effective way? You know, and that's where a lot of these things come unstuck as well. Well, that's also interesting because the point of academic research is often to create prototypes or technology that can be tested. It's not yes, to produce that's correct. large scale. Yes. Yeah, it has to go through many other processes, right? So, you know, all of these water cleaning things I see using really smart new materials, yeah, they work in a fish tank, but they're not going to work in Warragamba Dam. <laughs> you know, the scale is too big. So you've got to sort of, you know, we're always thinking about, okay, what is it, what's it going to cost to make this thing work in the real world? It's interesting you have to point that out. So are they are they done to work in a fish tank or are they made or they're done to work in a, a prototype which is a fish tank. That's right. Right? Okay, right. so we prove that it works. That's great. Silver works really well to clean water, right? We know that. But it's impossible to do that for a, a big city. You know, but to, again, so that costly. goes back to the problem that yeah. we talked about before. So that's yeah. not addressing a real problem in the real world. Yes. If the product, yes. the technology is not made yeah. to address a problem in, in a dam. Yeah. But a problem in a tank. Yes. Then yeah. again, it's not. But who knows? And that's where I get back to isn't research wonderful? Because then that research is put out there for everyone to see and published in a paper and someone might take that and build on it, right, and do something different that does make it applicable to the real world. So I think that's sort of interesting in itself, you know, that, yeah, we're finding out new things all the time. It can't be applied yet, but maybe it's the building block of something that can be. So that's a, an interesting point as well. So you said that you often see technologies or discoveries when people go to take it to their tech transfer office. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. often they've had the idea of getting a patent or covering mm -hmm. the IP. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the discoveries or research yes. doesn't go down that route yeah. and just gets published. Yeah. So do you miss all of this? in your work or um, don't people think about showing it to you? Well, the, the tech transfer office should be across everything and they're not always, right, for all sorts of reasons. But, but um, even the researchers don't always submit everything that they, yes, they discover don't. to the and tech transfer And in some office. universities you should. Like I'm pretty sure you really should disclose all of your inventions and the tech transfer office will go, yeah, we think there's a commercial opportunity for that right. or there isn't, right? And so there should be that pull the trigger on the paper or not type of discussion. But, yeah, I mean, if it is published, then if it is a business that absolutely needs a patent, then no, we can't do anything with it. We have to just let that one go because there's no, you know, because it will take so long to get those inventions to market. If you don't have that patent protection, then that vital defence is not there. So all the technologies or inventions you invested in mm -hmm. are protected by, with biopatents? Most of them, except for the ones where it's really just about business execution. So, for example, wildlife drones doesn't have a patent, but they have a lot of know-how. You'll probably get that in the quantum world as well, right? Maybe, you know, yes. sometimes. A lot of things are about know-how. I mean, everything that Veena is doing here it, with the Smart Centre, a lot of that is actually about know-how. It's not process patents or other bits and pieces. So you you just got to judge everything on its merit. But if you're looking at a drug or some sort of plant technology or materials technology, you're going to need that patent. So now I'm interested to talk about something you mentioned earlier as well, yeah. and that yeah. is impact. And yeah. we discussed that before, and yeah. impact has a lot of meanings for different people. Yeah. 
what is your definition of impact for scientific research? Yeah, well, I well impact for scientific research, you tell me, but in, impact in my world, and I, I mean, I was listening to a podcast that I like listening to this week in startups, and they were interviewing a deep technology investor. And impact was at the core of what they were looking at when they were looking at investment opportunities, but they felt that word was so overused that they called it world positive. So that's the way I like to look at it. So not just things that leave the building and go out, you know, outside of a lab and into the greater world. I think we've got to look at stuff and go, will it create a positive impact in the world for a whole bunch of people. So that's how I like to view it. So what do you call impact? I'm interested. (laughs) Well, I think you're right. I think it's something that's going to shift the concept, something that's going to make people think differently. Okay, Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean for the better, whatever I term better better, is. For the better, for the better, of course. But that's very hard to control as well. Sure. And sometimes it's worth also creating something that we don't really know it's whether it's going to be yeah. used for the better or not. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of like dual-edged, you know, use cases, isn't there? Yeah, Quantum it, computing, one of those, you know. Exactly, it's like, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So what is the better and should we mm. discard everything that has potential to do bad Yeah. yeah. Um, when it has great potential to do good as well? Well, no, I mean, obviously no. Otherwise yes. we wouldn't have done so many things right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the human race. But, um, I mean, we're, I was just having a discussion about philosophy the other day and probably with AI and everything there's a there's a big case for getting more philosophers into the world and into businesses at the moment, right, and to think about the stuff they're creating and how it's used and and whether it's going to have positive impact or never negative impact, you know. That's right. So something I've been working on for a little while is um, diagnostic tests. Mm. And these can be used to identify pathogens responsible for infectious diseases. But mm. They can also be used, for example, at borders to control mm. uh, migrants, the people you allow in or out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So again, is it, are you trying to do good? Can other people use it to do bad? Yeah. And what is the impact? That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. When, when you're investing in, in potential businesses, yeah. how much weight do you put to the potential impact that the business can have? So you talked about uh, financial return before. Yes, yes. And you expect 10x. Yeah, so that has to be there, absolutely. Like we have to understand that one, it has come from one of our institutions or benefit one of our institution research partners. And so then it's got to, can it make us enough money to cover all of yes. our losses, right? Because yes. this is a still, because we don't know what's going to work, it's still a gamble, right? Yes. And then the third thing is, is you know, we, we do look at impact and, and it's pretty much in every pitch we see. And what I love about, you know, coming from the really hardcore commercial world, which was all about making money right. and selling shit, really. Yeah. So this is, I. it's very rare to get something pitched from a university that doesn't have world positive in it because right. I think it's just the way people at universities are tuned, like they're tuned to make a difference in the world or maybe they get into these roles because they want to. Like they're not interested in the bottom line necessarily. They're interested in change and doing good. So almost every pitch we see has that flavour in it. And then if it doesn't, then I think another thing that we're broadly interested in and the investment community in Australia is getting great businesses 
coming out of Australia that create jobs, you know, that create jobs in the future. And so that's another thing. And how do you think this, uh, the weight of financial return and the weight of impact, do you th think this is changing or have you always asked for 10x return? Will you always ask for 10x return? Will you always ask for a little bit of impact or, you know? I think we'll always ask for 10x return. I think it would be really unusual to find an investor anywhere, even if they're a social impact fund, to not have that return there. Because it, and I think it's, it's, it's just something though that where it might not have been the flavour 10 years ago, it's beginning to be the flavour now. I think people want to invest their money where it will make a difference and they're saying things like, well, why can't I have my cake and eat it too? I don't have to damage the planet and its people to get my money. I can actually invest it in businesses that are doing good in the world and I can have, you know, I can have everything. And I think that's a really good way to look at it. I don't, we will never be, we had a proof of concept fund when we started back in 2000 and, and you said, I don't know if we're the oldest fund in Australia, maybe we're the longest surviving fund, that's for <laughs> sure, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, we had a proof of concept fund where we'd put two to 300,000, I think, in a whole bunch of stuff and we never looked at the commercial viability of all of those and the fund was a complete disaster. It failed. Right. But there was enough there to go, oh, well, maybe if we treat this like a regular fund, we have a chance of returning to our shareholders and creating good stories for them too, right, you know, about, you know. Yeah, I think that's a very honest response because yeah. in my experience when yeah. I have interacted with social impact funds yeah. or people will claim that they will promote impact or before financial return, really what they're interested in are yeah. financial returns. And did you get that from the questions they were asking you or what, how, did you, how did you glean that insight? Well, it's more me asking what they really want in return. <laughs> yeah, right. right, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, good. And, it's of, yeah. and often in the first meeting or two, it's the, the response is, no, we're a social impact fund. Yeah. Uh, we want to do good. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. But in the second or third meeting, mm, we, mm. what they really want is 10x again. Is, right? yeah, so I, yeah. I appreciate when someone says yeah. from the beginning, yeah. look, impact is important for us, but we want a 10x return. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that's our bottom line. Yeah. And I think, um, and I wish more investors were honest because they would save entrepreneurs a lot of time. So I definitely, and, you know, maybe it was, I, I'm not going to blame investors entirely for sure. It was just me being green around the traps when I was going out and looking for money for my business. But I definitely know that for the most part, you can't trust VCs when they say this is what we're looking for, because they'll they'll cast their net very, very wide to make sure that they're really making sure that they see everything, but actually everyone has a sweet spot. And so they'll, you know, they'll only invest in Series A right. really, and it'll only be these types of companies. And, you know, so you can actually save yourself a lot of time by just understanding what people really want. <laughs> But so the focus of, of Uniseed is yeah. very early stage mm -hmm. businesses mm -hmm. coming straight out of scientific research. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's our sweet spot. And that's what that's the purpose of the fund. Do we do only that? No. We do invest sometimes in later stage businesses as well. You know, we but they need to have a real benefit or still come out of one of these institutions. So we did more micro 
they're spending a lot of money at CSIRO on their R&D. So that, that works out really well for us. And, you know, it's really good for us to spread our risk as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's the thing, right? Yeah. So early stage also means high risk. High risk. So how yeah. do you de-risk a business you see yeah. potential in? What other things you, you do? Well, the only way you can do that is mature that business and, you know, go into the known rather than the unknown. So, I mean, why our area is tricky is that it has high technical risk and it also has high business risk, right? So, and that makes it a very difficult spot for investors. And that's why you need more early stage funds, I believe, in this area to get more stuff that is going to make massive impact in the world. It's not all software. You know, I believe bigger impact is going to be with deeper technology, um, but helping get them a bit further along so they're de-risked. You know, the business risk declines. You know, who your customer is, you know, how to get to them, you know, what your cost per acquisition is, you know, the cost of production, you've got, you know, firm sort of manufacturing contracts in place, blah, 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 blah. And that's when it starts looking more interesting to other investors that we reach out to and go, hey, got this great opportunity for you. Why don't you, you know, open up your coffers yeah, and, yeah. and give us some more cash so that we can keep building this business, you right. know? Right, great. Yeah. Can I ask, I'm very interested in talking about the businesses you've already invested in. Looking back, can yeah. you give me some examples of businesses that went big, that worked? That worked, yeah. Well, I mean, for Uniseed, we've had six exits actually well we've just announced another couple of them I guess so that's more like eight now when we've roughly invested in 60 businesses now yes so that's pretty good that's like pretty getting good. close yeah. to one in ten yeah. right yeah. but the big sort of standouts that return the fund i.e you know they gave us all the money back to, to cover all you know everything that people had put in were drugs right so pretty right. much when you invest in a drug it's all very well understood what your odds are. I find it so fascinating because there's really no business risk and there's all technical risk. That's probably oversimplifying right. yes. it in drugs. But you've just got to reach, go through the hard technical gates in the time and money you've got, right? right. That's that's the game. You to know, sure that it works. Yeah, to make yeah. sure that it works, yeah. that you get through all the different yeah. clinical trials and things like that. And so, But when you do, you're also assured of an exit number, which is basically a billion dollars, right? right? Yes. So for the money that Uniseed's invested, which is, you know, up to four and a half million on any investment, we usually make our money back and then some on those types of um, yes. investments. So, you know, so Spinifex and Hatchtech were our sort of really big ones in that area. But we're on our way with another business called Exonate, which is actually based in the UK and actually is UNSW research as well. And so we're getting into an agreement with Johnson & Johnson, which is fantastic on that one. And Smart Sparrow, actually, it's a great, a great news month in January 2020. So Smart Sparrow, Sparrow was student IP that came out of this institution and just had an exit as well. Great. So, yeah. you know, so there's some ones, but mainly they've been drugs, but, and, and that's just where we've always been strong. But I think we've, you know, with me and, and now Paul, you know, we've got some good physical science people as well and we're seeing more physical science things as well. We, pro, You know, so we, we tend to invest in what we, everything that we see and the numbers just completely reflect that. We see more drug opportunities than physical right. science opportunities or we, what we call non-bio and so we tend yes. to invest in more drugs. But, you know, we're... That area is changing all the time with all the other things coming up. So, Is that the only difference between the businesses that worked and those that didn't? 
No, I I mean, not really. I mean, there was, oh, we, you know, we had our fair share of drugs, drug opportunities dying last year right, <laughs> as yeah. well. We had, I think, three <laughs> or something like that. So it's just an odds thing, right? We just, I think we probably invested less in physical sciences just because that's less of what we saw and so there were less wins there. I mean, we had a cybersecurity one that did, we did exit, probably not for a great return, but... I mean, I think it's just as time goes on, you'll see more wins in non-drugs and that's just because what we have in our pipe and then what, you know, gets invested in. I'm interested to to hear, is that specific to Australia, do you think, or is that globally? Do you think Mm. drug companies an Australian specificity Mm. and our physics, non-bio companies flourish more outside. Is that Mm. that something you've noticed? I really can't answer that with, like, I don't know. Right. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) I wish I did, but, uh, yeah, I I really don't know what that is. Like, I don't know if you're a Stanford and pushing heaps of things out there, if that, you know, bio works better than non-bio or all those institutions in the UK. I have no idea. Okay, fine. Going back to how you select companies, is it for you investing in potential businesses and early stage discoveries, is that a competitive sector? Or how quickly do you have to decide to invest in a business? You're going to invest in a business. Yeah, that is a really good question. And then there's another interesting question that comes out of that, which is why haven't you mentioned founders that much, right? Look, it never used to be. It never used to be. And so we could really take our time on things. Right. And let's face it, like there was no founder sitting there not earning cash. They were in an institution. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. So you've got the clock ticking on the patent. Yes. But not, a, you know, like it could be done in its own time right. sort of thing. You know, yes. maybe not always, but we always try and work in with the institutions because obviously they've got their own goals about spin-outs and things like that as well, right? Yeah. So we try and be a good partner. But then what's happened recently, which I think is a great thing, is more competitions come in, which is wonderful. So we've got the IP group hailing from the UK coming in and into our space and roughly having the same opportunities as we do in our patch, you know. And then you've had, you know, the, a really big main sequence ventures come in but to be honest you know they're a little bit further along for the most part so they're not really going into our space and it's you know it's really great to have all of those guys there but it does mean that there's more competition and we do have to move a bit faster on things if we all like it and Back to your original question, seeing the researchers early on, yes, it's good to shape what they're doing and talk about, you know, have you seen industry? But the other thing is, is this is a relationship business. Yes. And it's really good for us to understand quickly and for the researcher to understand quickly whether we can work with each other. Because when you go into business together, you're... You're like you're married. You're going to have a lot of conversations every day. You're going to have a lot of hard conversations. And you need to know that that person's a good person and you can work with them. Well, that's great. So let's talk about founders then. Yeah. So do the researchers become founders? Sometimes, but not often. And if they're not, who are the founders? Yeah. So so if the researcher stays in the institution, which is most of our investments, because, you know, they've got tenure here. They've worked for a long time to get the positions they have. They've got great you know, superannuation. And let's face it, like being a great researcher is really different from being a great business person. Correct. Yeah, It's a different skill set. So unless that person is really rare, one, they don't want to, and two, if they do want to, 
an investor probably wouldn't let them. They might be a CTO's, you know, chief technical officer or science officer or something right. like that. But even then, it's like, can you work to a commercial deadline? It's really quite different. Yes. So for the most part, they don't and they don't want to and they stay in their institutions. But the company might fund their lamp, which yes. is a great outcome, yeah. right, yes. to do work to yes. the R&D work for the business. So that's a really great outcome for everybody. That's right. But sometimes, the and so in those cases, we don't have founders. They're what you call venture builds. So the venture company creates it. We put all the investors choose a CEO and the CEO goes in and runs the business. You know, they might get a bit of ESOP, you know, which is options. And so they've got a bit of skin in the game. But actually, those guys are usually well paid for what they do. Yes. Right. Yes. So a founder... So if you get investment as a founder in a normal sort of software business, you're really not paid a lot of money, guys. Like you're paid 70 grand to 120 tops yes. every year. Not many of them are paid 120 because they've got a good amount of equity and that is how they're incentivized, right. right? So, but these guys are different. They're employees for the most part. Yes. So, and they've got a very rare technical skill set and they're good operators. So they do get paid a bit of money. For the other businesses that are founder-led that we invest in, which have been my two investments to date, that's the normal founder model. So yeah. there is a founder in the business and, and they've got the control of the equity for the most part, you know, so yes. we, and, and they're the right people to be running that business. So we sort of let, let them get on with it a bit more and aren't so hands-on. We're, we're really there to help you know, to help move them forward. And so do you only invest, I should have asked this question earlier, but do you always invest in research-based discoveries that come out of Australian universities? For the most part, yes, but we're, so in let's the case unpack of the, that a bit. Yeah. yeah, it can be student IP too, right? right. So it's something right. they've discovered as a student that the university has no ownership of, right? right? Because you no know, supervisors have been involved and things like that. So we have invested in a few of those. Right. But it really has to have come out of their in this institution or one of the others because it has to, they're giving us money for a reason. Yes. Right? And that yes. money is to get research into the world. And yes. so we have to be really clear about our mandate there, you know, and, right. and who, right. who pays the bills, you right. know, and yeah, what yeah, they want yeah. out of us, you know. What is the future of Uniseed? Where is Uniseed going? That is such a good question. And I mean, I hope we change, you know, like these institutions are changing. The focus of the institutions are changing. Um, the culture of these institutions is changing and we have to change along with that. So we never used to invest in student IP and now we do because it's becoming important to the universities. I don't know. I don't think we're going to be a bigger fund because unless there's more things that we can invest in, there really is no reason to. I, you know, would it be good to have a broader mandate? I don't think so. I don't know. Like sometimes I see research that comes out of other institutions that I'd love to invest in, but that's not the will of the board to have too yes. many more other institutions. So I think, you know, we keep doing what we're doing, but what I hope will change is that we will just see more and more uh, startup opportunities coming out of these institutions where research is done to solve a painful problem that can be commercialised. And, and so that would be my hope, that the fund gets bigger because there's just more opportunities with the research institutions we work with. 
So that, I think that's a great way to end that podcast, I think. And right. it goes back to the beginning. Yeah. So, but do you think UNICEF has a role to play in educating researchers as well and telling them what it is to do research that's going to solve real world problems? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we try to without stepping on anyone's toes. I think we, you know, we try and chat to people where we can and and help influence their research to, you know, be a bit more attuned to industry and what their needs are and things like that. And we did a series of events last year where we spoke to researchers at all the unis, you know, to talk about what it is that we look for. And we actually we actually took a back seat and actually let the researchers who'd commercialised things speak about their experience and getting things into the real world because that's actually a much better place for researchers to start, other people who've done it, rather than us. And I think the more opportunities we have, we're grateful for, for chatting to people because it's, you know, part of the way we goal ourselves is engagement, you know, whatever that means. But, you know, talking to people and getting the word out there and and really trying to help people along. Like if someone asks for help, we will very rarely say no. You know, I don't think we ever have said no. You know, if someone genuinely or even not wants help, we'll sit down with them and have a coffee and answer all their questions. So that's, you know, we're always happy to do that. Great. So perfect way to end. I think then we'd put your details somewhere so that it's accessible to people if they want to to contact you, ask you more questions. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. I had fun. I learned a lot. Thank you very much for your time, Natasha. Yeah, pleasure, Rom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for What.